0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host James West, and today I'm joined by Nick Witham to discuss his new book, Popularizing the Past: Historians, Publishers, and Readers in Postwar America, which is out this month from the University of Chicago Press. Nick is an associate professor of US History at University College London, where he is also head of the Institute of the Americas. Popularising the past tells the story of five influential post-war historians, Richard Hofstadter, Daniel Borstin, John Hope Franklin, Howard Zinn, and Gerda Lerner, who changed the way ordinary Americans thought about their nation's history. Nick demonstrates these authors' efforts to captivate both scholars and the elusive general reader could not have succeeded without a publishing industry and a reading public hungry to engage with the cutting-edge ideas then emerging from American universities. As he persuasively argues, before we can properly understand the heated controversies about American history that are so prominent in today's political culture, we must first understand the post-war effort to popularise the past. Hi Nick, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm good, thank you James. It's really nice to be here.
0: Looking forward to talking about your book. What are the origins of this project for you? Was there a moment where you realised this is actually going to become the next book that I want to write?
1: Yeah. So this is my this is my second book. Uh, so this is the project I embarked upon, my second project that I embarked upon after finishing my PhD. And I suppose it originated out of two sets of problems, one of which I saw as a set of professional problems, and one that I saw as a set of intellectual problems. So the professional problem was essentially something that I realised was happening on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm speaking from Britain, where I was trained in American studies and where I teach American history. Uh, On this side of the Atlantic, we have this uh, university exercise that happens every so often uh, called the Research Excellence Framework, which is one of the ways in which government funnels its money towards universities to fund research. And it has all kinds of metrics that uh, rank the quality of our research. It's a bureaucratic exercise that I think a lot of academics uh, find quite laborious and problematic. Uh, And one of the things that it does, I think, is mitigate against Historians and other uh, scholars working in the humanities and the social sciences, writing for popular audiences, because writing for popular audiences is perhaps frowned upon. It's not seen as a high quality, as more traditional academic writing, narrowly focused monographs and journal articles. As I had the conversations that I was having about this with colleagues on the other side of the Atlantic in the United States, I realized that some of the same anxieties existed. The ref doesn't exist in the United States, of course, but um, conversations around tenure, conversations around promotion applications, often brought to the fore similar sets of anxieties about popular historical writing. So really, I wanted to kind of dig into these questions and historicize them um, and find out what the experience of historians who wrote popular histories uh, in the second half of the 20th century was. And this then led me into a series of intellectual problems, one of which was a sense amongst professional historians, and this is where I start the book, that The recurring crises that the discipline of history tends to experience, the sense that professional historians aren't being listened to, the sense that students aren't registering to take history degrees or majoring in in history as part of their college courses, is somehow to do with the fact that historians have become obscure too specialized unable to speak to popular audiences Uh, and this is something that many historians have written and complained about and I trace a little history of this in the introduction of the book going back to historians like um, Alan Nevins in the 1940s coming forward to people like Eric Foner in the 1980s and then forward again to someone like Jill Lepore um, in the last few years um, all of whom complain about the historical profession's inability to speak to popular audiences It's not so much that I don't think that narrative is true, but I think that there's another side to that narrative, which is to try and think about what the experiences of historians who wrote for popular audiences was. And by popular audiences, I mean essentially non-academic readers, people who are not specialised historians with uh, high-level disciplinary training. So this got me thinking about historians as writers. It got me thinking about historians' relationships with their publishers. And also it got me thinking about the experience of readers and what readers got out of histories that were aimed at them as non-specialists. So those were all the kind of intellectual questions that were motivating me to to zero in on the five historians who make up the book.
0: You've just mentioned there we focus on five historians. So just briefly, who are these five historians and what was the process of choosing these particular people?
1: So I spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about this because, of course, there were dozens of historians that I could pick. And there was a there was a point where I thought, well, perhaps this could be an almost synthetic history that doesn't zero in on individual lives, but tries to talk about the, um, the general experience of the of the, the many, many American historians in the second half of the 20th century who saw in one way or another. Um, to write for non-specialist or non-academic audiences. Uh, But in the end, I decided that a a slightly more biographical approach would be useful. So I chose in the end to focus on five historians. um, And they are Richard Hofstadter, Daniel Borstin, John Hope Franklin, Howard Zinn, and Gerda Lerner. And I think what's what's interesting about these, these five is that on one level, they all write similar types of books. And these are what I call popular national histories. I realized that that definition didn't allow me to include a female historian. And I thought that that was a, that was a very important thing to do because the, the experiences, as I, as I trace in the book of Gerda Lerner, are, are quite different in some ways because of her gender compared to the four men. So I stretched that definition slightly. So Gerda Lerner's two books that I write about, The Creation of Patriarchy and The cre- Creation of Feminist Consciousness, are not specifically American histories. They are, in fact, global histories but they are very specifically written for American audiences, and that's something that's quite clear when you trace the history of those books. So it it started with a question of almost genre, um, but there's also a shared generational sensibility between those five historians. They're born in a fairly tight period between 1914 and 1922, um, and whilst there are various elements of their biographies that are quite diverse, they nonetheless share quite a few experiences, um, especially coming of age during World War II and the Cold War, and then embarking upon academic careers after that point. Then the final point to make about those five historians is that as well as all being roughly the same age, the publication dates of the books that they wrote that I write about are quite broad. So the book allows us to track the changes as well as the continuities in the development of popular historical writing. Um, between 1947, which is the date that um, John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom is published, um, through to 1993, which is the final date when, um, when Gerda Lerner's uh, The Origins of Feminist Consciousness is published.
0: And you split these five historians into two broad camps. Uh, the first two, Hofstadter and, and Borsten, you say they're writing for general readers, and then Franklin Zinn and Lerner writing more for activist readers. So can you say a bit more about this categorization and why you chose to split them into these two camps?
1: I think a simple starting point might be to say that historians writing for general readers were historians motivated primarily by ideas about The literary aspect of the history that they were writing. Whereas historians writing for activist readers were primarily driven by the political elements of the histories they were writing. And there's no hard and fast division between those, those two things. All five of these people, to some extent, driven by literary ideas and to some extent, driven by politics. But nonetheless, I think that that division is useful. And to explain it a little bit further, the idea of the general reader and I'm putting that in in kind of in scare quotes as I say it, is is an incredibly often used context during the the second half of the 20th century. Um, And it's often used in a relatively ill-disciplined way um, by many people who talk about general readers um, in the United States, but especially by professional historians. It's a a common ambition that historians articulate to other historians, to literary agents, to publishers, that they want to write for a general audience. Um, And what they mean by that usually he's not just the mass American public, because in some senses, such a thing doesn't exist. It's actually much more specific than that. They're usually referring to educated, urbane, white Americans engaged with literary culture, um, probably wanting intellectual stimulation, as well as entertainment from from the books that they read. And this is often what's referred to as a kind of middle brow audience. Um, And so Hofstadter and Boston, in particular are writing for what they explicitly term general readers. They're thinking about those sets of assumptions, their classed assumptions, their race assumptions, and that's important. Um, also, I think there's an assumption that those general readers are going to be operating politically within the political consensus of the period. They're not going to be looking for radical alternatives to the status quo. On the other hand, activist readers are looking, I think, often for radical alternatives to the, the status quo. They have more specifically political rather than literary reasons for, for reading the history that they want to read. Um, and in the In the book, I talk about these readers often being closely associated with or at least inspired by and interested in um, the social movements that emerge in the United States during the second half of the 20th century, and in particular, during and after the 1960s. So we're talking about the black freedom struggle, we're talking about second wave feminisms, we're talking about the youth politics that surround the student new left and the counterculture, anti-war politics, these types of things. Um, And those activist readers want national histories that speak specifically to those problems. Um, in US history, racism, uh, sexism, the rise of war in a militaristic national security state, these types of questions.
0: So the first of the two historians writing for a general reader that that you talk about Hofstadter, you have this quite nice quote about his book, The American Political Tradition, which you you focus on It's a politicized history written for an audience that defied political categorization. What exactly do you mean by that? and, And how can we situate that book and its popularity within the political, cultural context of, of the early Cold War?
1: Yeah, so The, the American Political Tradition, which is um, a book that Richard Hofstadter writes when he's in his early 30s and is published in 1948, is probably his best known book, although he did write a series of other books, many of which are quite, are quite famous. And it's an overview history written in a kind of essayistic way, focusing in on uh, specific, important figures, all of whom are men, um, within the American political tradition. And the book is very much informed, as I as I argue, um, by a a combination of Hofstadter's political ideas and his ideas about literature. So his political ideas stem from the fact that um, in his youth he was a Communist Party of the USA um, member for a very brief period of time, but but leaves quite quite angrily around the time of the Moscow Show Trials. Uh, But he remains left wing, certainly through the period when he writes this book, Um, and he is very very keen to skewer. American capitalism. And this kind of drives the argument of the book and drives each of the individual chapters, which are kind of caricatures in a sense, and he makes that point explicitly, of various significant figures in the American political tradition, ranging from the founding fathers through Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, um, up to Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt, who are the kind of contemporary figures. And he describes American democracy as democracy in cupidity, rather than a democracy of fraternity. And this kind of gives you a sense of the the desire he he has to puncture national myths. He's also interested in, in writing with literary flair. And in a letter to his friend, Alfred Kazin, he basically says, please don't categorize me with historians uh, historians tend not to be very good writers I'm really a sort of suppressed literature and I think when I when I talk about that contradiction um, uh, between Hofstadter writing a politicalized history but for an audience that defied political characterization I'm talking about the dynamic between that political idea and that and that literary idea uh, and essentially as Hofstadter and his publishers uh, Alfred a Knopf talked about the general readership for his book they were imagining that readership that I've just outlined to you, James. Um, Part of the liberal consensus, well-educated, liberal or conservative, but roughly committed to the the status quo in in, in American politics. And those readers liked Hofstadter's book, not because of its left-wing arguments, but because of his acerbity and his wit and the entertainment that they got from reading these essays that, that Hofstadter thought of as caricatures. And so what that meant, in a sense, and there's a story here that doesn't relate just to Hofstadter it relates to some of the other historians I write about too is that Hofstadter isn't truly in control of the meaning of his of his best-selling book that readers make of it quite different things than um, than he intended because he comes to be seen as a consensus historian which is an idea that listeners may already have a sense of familiarity with but consensus history is often thought of as a kind of relatively smug Centrist American history written in the middle of the 20th century to support America's sense of exceptionalism and the political work that that idea of exceptionalism did in the Cold War struggle with the Soviet Union. Hofstadter is basically desperate not to be associated with that school of thought. But the contradiction between his literary style and his political views is is, is what creates that situation. And that's something I trace
0: in quite a lot of detail. We have this convergence, if you like, of on the one hand the historian writing the history, and then on the other hand the, the publisher. Um, editing and, and promoting it. From Hofstadter specifically, what kind of back and forth do you see there?
1: Yes, there's definitely tension. I mean, I think that the story of that chapter and part of the story of the whole book is is how positive and beneficial the dynamics between historians and publishers are, emphasising the significant agency that um, major, uh, in most cases, non-academic trade publishing houses had in shaping the popular history That academic historians wrote. But nonetheless, the historians themselves had all kinds of tensions, arguments, difficulties with their individual editors and with the teams that were marketing and publicizing their book. And that sense of back and forth and a little bit of kind of grouchiness um, is is there throughout the book. Uh, And in Hofstadter's case, that that contradiction is is definitely there between him and both his editors and and the people doing publicity for the book. It comes in one sense because uh, Hofstadter really wants to just write a series of literary essays about these major figures in American history, uh, and his editor tells him he absolutely has to write an introduction that synthesizes the arguments of the book. And it's something that Hofstadter struggles with. He writes multiple versions of this introduction. He really struggles with it. And he struggles to to write as entertainingly and engagingly in the introduction as he does in the individual chapters. And part of the problem that Hofstadter ends up experiencing is that it is the introduction where he makes this claim for a kind of unity um, between all these different figures, crossing chronological uh, difference, but also crossing political difference in, in in particular difference of political party this also comes across in the title there's a considerable amount Uh, the book's title, I should say, there's a considerable amount of correspondence between Hofstadter and and his editors, where Hofstadter is essentially telling um, telling the team at Knopf, stop giving my book titles that makes it sound like it's about great and eminent men in American history, or that somehow tells a story about American history that reminds us all that that we live in a great nation. That's exactly the opposite of what I want to do. I I want to kind of blow holes in those myths. Um, I want to burst the balloon, so to speak. And in the end, he he gets a title that he's fairly happy with. But I think it's it's interesting there. And again, that is the dynamic between the historian who, who wants his ideas to, to be at the forefront and the publishers who want the kind of the sense of marketing and publicity to be at the forefront.
0: And then we pivot to Daniel Borstin and you introduce Borstin uh, or his approach as a pretty explicit rejection of Hofstadter's approach so in what ways is that clear and is that in terms of like literary style or is it to do with kind of the political or ideological approach to the writing?
1: I think that's that's absolutely the right premise to start with, although I think it misstates things slightly because um, I think it's actually Hofstadter who's really keen on rejecting Borstin. Uh, they come to be lumped together by people talking about consensus history. And I don't think Daniel Boston really minds that, but Richard Hofstadter is very angry about it. And what that means is that uh, Hofstadter is kind of rejecting Boorstin's style rather than the other way around. But nonetheless, it's an important starting point for that chapter in the book, because Boston was much less interested in that idea that Hofstadter had of himself as being a, literat- a literature, someone who strove to write skilled, elegant prose. For Boston, popular history was supposed to be practical and enjoyable, and it was supposed to tell Americans something important about the United States about its national identity, about its place in the world, uh, and in particular, to to use American history to say something um, that spoke to the the kind of global conflict of the Cold War. And I think that comes as much as anything from from his background. Uh, so he is born in Atlanta, Georgia, but moves um, very early in his life to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, essentially, his um, his father is one of the lawyers involved um, in the defense of Leo Frank uh, in in Atlanta. Um, and this means that he, he has to he has to leave the city. He arrives in Tulsa, basically having having fled to some extent the anti-Semitism of Atlanta. His father becomes a booster for Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I think that idea of boosterism is something that Boston very much picks up from his father and kind of projects not onto Tulsa, Oklahoma, but onto the nation writ large. Uh, so he becomes a booster for the United States in some senses with his three volumes, The Americans, the the colonial experience, the national experience and the democratic experience are the, are the subtitles of the three volumes, which are published in, in 1958, 1965 and, and 1973, respectively. So in that sense, he, he's very unlike Hofstadter. They're still both wanting to engage with general audiences. But Boston is is very keen to kind of make his history practical for the moment, enjoyable for Americans to read because it makes them feel proud.
0: And you have this... Really interesting description, I thought, of Boston's imagined audience, and he'd talk about effectively writing history for what Nixon would later describe as, as the silent majority. For Boston, like, how much do you think that informs his writing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question.
0: I mean, Boston's political
1: trajectory is, at least in its origin, not that dissimilar to Richard Hofstadter's. He's a member of the um, Communist Party as a young man, again, swiftly rejects it, but unlike Hofstadter, doesn't kind of remain of the left in some way. Um, he moves to the anti-communist left um, or anti-communist liberalism uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. And then he's becomes steadily more conservative during the course of his career. And I think that's that's important in two ways. Um, one of them is about the types of history he writes. And then uh, the other way is about the, the uses he puts those histories to. So the type of histories he writes are ones that try and explain the experiences of um, what he would describe as everyday middle class suburban Americans to themselves um, so he writes about the rise of department stores, the rise of hotels. He tells of the rise of the suburbs and the experiences that come along with those. He talks about the rise of professions like um, the medical profession. So this is, like you say, this is history pitched at a middle-class audience um, and one that tells them that they that they should be proud and engaged and, and entertained by the history of the development of the aspects of their life that matter most to them. There's a sense in which that, those should be put to political use. And I think this speaks to Boston's more kind of concrete political affiliations. He starts off as a professional historian working in the history department at the University of Chicago, but he's a very ambitious man. And during the course of the 1970s, um, goes on to direct um, one of the Smithsonian's museums in in Washington, DC, the National Museum of History and Technology, it was called then, it's now the, um, the American History Museum um, and then shortly after that becomes Librarian of Congress. And essentially, in both of those roles, he becomes, to some extent, a political appointee, very explicitly when he's he's nominated to be Librarian of Congress by President Gerald Ford, but more implicitly, but nonetheless, it's still there when he's, when he's um, taking up his role at the Smithsonian. And he comes by the 1970s to identify explicitly with um, the Republican Party. He's very animated by a rejection of affirmative action, um, and he argues against what he calls the way America has turned into the quota states of America.
0: So then we move from these two towards the second section of the book, and we begin with John Hope Franklin. And I think for Franklin in particular, but also for the other historians you write about in this section, there's this undercurrent all the way through, or this anxiety around impartiality or objectivity. So you write that Franklin needed to demonstrate a solid veneer of impartiality. Why was that important for Franklin and and how did he try to do this? I mean, the,
1: the simple and, and unsurprising answer to your question, James, and, and and you'll know this given the work that you've done on black popular historical writing, is race, right? And the racial politics of the historical profession uh, and of the US publishing industry and of US culture more, more generally. So Franklin is is an African-American historian, and he's by no means the first African-American historian, and he's deeply uh, indebted to to generations of black historians that have come before him. But nonetheless, he's one of the first black historians who really becomes truly embraced by the American historical profession, um, and who is able to publish his books with trade presses, Uh, again, like Alfred A. Knopf, who who published Richard Hofstadter's book, too. And what I think Knopf want from Franklin is, is this sense that he transcends his race, uh, and this is something that gets talked about in internal um, memos uh, that, are, that are flying around the publishing house. Uh, it, it also gets talked about by the white historians who are advocates for Franklin, who describe him as the type of historian who is who is happy to write about African-American history and write about it well and engagingly and with intellectual seriousness, but is able to, to sort of transcend the temptation to be an advocate for his race. And this is something that I think throughout his career, Franklin really struggled with because he was constantly it was constantly evident to him that he had not transcended his race and that there were a series of expectations made of him by the historical profession and by the publishing industry that meant that he was categorized as a black historian um, and not as a historian of the South or a, as a historian of the United States, which are the identities he would have preferred to have had. So there are all kinds of ways, I think, in which that, that like you said, that solid veneer of impartiality um, is, is required of a black historian like Franklin by the historical profession, by the publishing industry, in a way that it's not required of people like Hofstadter and Boston. But he's also making, making use of it, right? And his ability to articulate that sense of impartiality and have his, have his, um, the people who are, who are writing encouragingly to Knopf to tell the publisher that they should publish his book, these allow him to, um, to gain traction, I suppose, in a way that perhaps some other black historians writing before him had not been able to do so
0: talking about gaining traction in particular the book really gains a new life into the 60s and sees a, a surge in popularity so why exactly is that
1: yeah I, and it's, it's important to note here i think that
0: just to give a little bit of backstory
1: before we get to the 1960s uh, in, in franklin's story he's an accidental popular historian I think, um, in comparison to Hofstadter and Boston, who we've talked about so far, um, and maybe also in comparison to someone like Howard Zinn, who we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, he doesn't approach this book with the solid, with the intention of writing for for non academic readers. He kind of accidentally finds himself the author of From Slavery to Freedom, which is ironic given that it's the it's the book that makes his name and makes his career and that he's famous for. Knopf had originally wanted a survey of African-American history written by a black historian, and they'd they'd asked another historian, a much more senior historian, older than Franklin, to write it, Charles Wesley. But they weren't very impressed with the manuscript that he produced. They originally got Franklin um, involved to be a co-author, but uh, Wesley wasn't very impressed by that idea, so he dropped out. And Franklin found himself, um, in a sense, rushing to write the book that would define his career, and he wrote it in about a, a year or a year and a half in the 1940s, remember this book is published in 1947 in its first edition, he gets this sense that Knopf are very, very excited in him as a literary talent and in his book as something that can change white Americans' ideas about race and racism in the United States. Uh, But then over the subsequent Sort of 20 years between 1947 and let's say the middle of the 1960s, he gets very, very disappointed with Knopf and their inability to sell large numbers of copies of this book. He doesn't think the book's publicized well. He doesn't think Knopf are making any effort to get it into black colleges in the South and elsewhere in the United States. Uh, He basically thinks they don't understand his book and its potential. To this extent, they don't release it as a paperback um, until the middle of the 1960s. Um, So it's it's relatively uh, expensive. It goes through new editions, but it's relatively expensive. It's relatively um, hard to buy. And we see in, in sales figures it, it not selling more than a few thousand copies each year. But then suddenly um, in 1967, when it's published in a paperback, right in the midst of the, the black freedom struggle, sales Shoot through the roof, and it's 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 selling uh, tens of thousands of copies a year uh, in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, and it maintains those sales figures throughout the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, um, which is which is amazing. And I think in some senses, what we see there is the power of the paperback as a technology for the transmission of of, of popular history, but there's also clear political dynamics going on there. As I've mentioned, the the explosion of the black freedom struggle, the desire amongst black Americans and white Americans to read about the type of history that Franklin's writing about, but also changes on American campuses too. And the the historian Martha Biondi, amongst others, has written about the black revolution on campus in the the 1960s and 1970s, where black history, uh, African-American studies courses rise in popularity um, because of the agency of black activists on campus. And these black activists they sometimes see Franklin as a bit too liberal and not radical enough but nonetheless, from slavery to freedom becomes a key text for their understanding of black history. Um, and this is something that, that we see in a whole in a, in a whole range of different ways. That element of the book's afterlife in a sense is, is is all about the paperback, but it's also about the black freedom struggle and that and those changes on on, on American university campuses which mean that there is an explosion in the readership for the book.
0: How does that inform the, the revision of, of his book? Because uh, we go through quite a lot of different editions, right? In terms of the practical use of, of language, uh, do we see terminology changing or just conceptually, like what gets added or what gets taken out to the text to, um, as it's shaped and reshaped by these, these broader currents?
1: That's a, a really good question. And it's another really important part of the afterlife of the book, especially from uh, the mid 1960s through to the to the present, and the book's gone through, um, I think, ten editions, and there's uh, an eleventh edition that is is going to be published relatively soon, and there are a range of different changes that take place. So um, perhaps the most important headline change is is is, is changes in the title uh, of the book, um, which which tells an interesting story on, on on two levels. So the book is titled from Slavery to Freedom, um, and the subtitle changes twice. So there are three separate subtitles that the book has. Its original um, subtitle is A History of American Negroes. That gets changed in the 1960s to a history of Negro Americans. Um, and then it gets changed again in the 1990s to a history of African Americans. Those changes I think are are important. There's that subtle change from American Negroes to Negro Americans I think is 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 significant because in the earlier editions of the book, Franklin I think is very is very keen on placing um, African Americans Um, within a larger um, transnational diaspora. And that speaks to uh, the origins he sees for for black history uh, in the history of Africa, and also the Caribbean and Brazil. uh, He he dedicates quite a lot of material in opening chapters and early editions of the book to that. By the 1960s, he's moving the history towards a, a more nationally focused history of the United States. That Kind of transnational diasporic context does not disappear completely, uh, but it's definitely not as important to Franklin as, as it as it previously was, and, and therefore you get the shift away from um, American Negroes towards Negro Americans in the the subtitle. And so that's one one shift that I think is important and and demonstrates one of the afterlives of the book. But then of course the other, and I think perhaps more important shift is the shift to African Americans that comes quite late in the 1990s. Uh, And it's something that Franklin gets a lot of angry letters from readers about, uh, essentially saying that the previous subtitles are outmoded, they're in fact offensive to students, to teachers, to general readers. that he should change the title to Afro-American or African-American or something something less um, less problematic uh, in a, in a kind of modern racial era. And there's something interesting there because, of course, the change does eventually happen. uh, And the book is now subtitled A History of African-Americans. But Franklin is quite resistant to that change. um, And he's resistant to it, I think, because generationally he is part of a group of scholars who saw the designation of Negro as being an important one to their political identities uh, and to their sense of being taken seriously within American society. So. That process, seeing it worked through in the archival documents, uh, and 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 I try and I try and tell that story in a bit of detail in in the book is a is is a really important one. In the first edition, Franklin places the origins of African American history in Ethiopia, in East Africa, but as scholarship on those questions changes, he moves the origins of the story actually away from Ethiopia towards West Africa. Um, he also, during the course of the 1970s and 1980s, he takes on a co-author, one of his former PhD students at Chicago, Alfred A. Moss, who's part of a younger, slightly more radical um, generation of black activists, who pushes him in a range of ways to change the historiography that he's referring to. And in, one of the most significant things there is the emergence of cultural history as a theme in the book. Franklin was quite a keen jazz trumpeter, but was clearly not interested in 1947 in telling the history of, for example, jazz music. Um, but by the 1980s, he is uh, and does and does a fairly good job of that in the, in the book. So there are there are ways in which in which the turn towards black cultural history changes the book um, as well. So, yes, there are quite a lot of differences in, in, in Franklin's text, and that is mapped out over those over those key editions.
0: And then we move on to Howard Zinn, who might be the name most familiar to a lot of listeners. I think compared to the historians that have come before, um, perhaps more of a a controversial figure or or polemical figure, what is it about Zinn's writing that um, engenders this, this response?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And you're, you're right. The um the response to Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, which is published in 1980, is probably the most extreme of all the responses that the books I write about received. I think that's because it's, it's an avowedly and explicitly left-wing book. It's written, in a sense, as history from below. But it's also written in a much more fundamental and striking way, let's say, than Richard Hofstadter's book. It's written to skewer national mythology, and it's written to to talk about essentially the dark side of American history. And so that means, inevitably, uh, especially given that writing in 1980 with a book that remains in print and sells millions of copies over the subsequent 30 or 40 years, um, Zinn becomes a player in the American culture wars, uh, and he gets all kinds of opprobrium from the American right. uh, And we see that in a whole variety of ways. One way in which we see it is that um, he gets targeted on campus by conservative uh, campus activists who try and get him fired, who try and stop his book being used in college classrooms. We also see it um, later in the period, um, conservative politicians of various different stripes pick on Howard Zinn as an example of what has gone wrong with American universities and the American historical profession. But I think Zinn also gets opprobrium from within the American historical profession itself. It's not just conservatives. It's often people who are sympathetic to his politics, but not sympathetic to the approach to history writing that he, that he takes. And he gets criticism from the 1980s onwards um, from professional historians who suggest that his history book is essentially too simplistic. And I think that was, that was a kind of controversy, essentially, that, that Zinn was very happy to create both the controversy with the right and the controversy within the historical profession. Uh, and he lent into that controversy uh, and he saw it as fuel essentially to the fire of, of, of writing and developing the the idea of popular history that he was
0: articulating to his his readers. I think you initially talk about him conceiving this book or originally pitching this book in the early 60s, but then it's not published until 1980. Can you speak a bit about why that is? And then also i th- link this to the larger point that I think you make really well about where Zinn fits within the relationship between the old left and the new left.
1: Yeah, the book emerges in in Zinn's mind, I think, at least in, in part, in the 1960s, as he's teaching American history, in particular at, S- at Spelman College, a, a black women's college in, in, in the South, where he moves immediately after finishing his PhD. Um, but of course, he's, he's, a, he's quite peripatetic in his interests. Um, he's, a, he's a key figure in the anti-war movement. Um, he's a key white contributor to the black freedom struggle. And during the 1960s and 1970s, I think he gets distracted by other things, other writing projects, essentially projects that focus in particular on um, the civil rights movement and on the anti-war movement. But more important, I think the book that he ends up writing, a chronological history of the United States from Columbus to the present that is explicitly left wing in intention uh, and and, and is written from 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 the bottom up, a people's history of the United States. That book makes much more sense um, in the kind of post 1960s. Cultural political publishing landscape than it would have done had he published it in the early or mid 1960s. By 1980, those culture wars that I mentioned earlier between left and right are really beginning to take shape, and a book of this type makes a controversial intervention in those cult- culture wars. But I think what's also really interesting, and this relates to the second part of your question, um, is the way in which Zinn generationally um, had a kind of foot in the camp of the old left and a foot in the camp of the new left. And in fact, because of his biography, another person closely associated with the Communist Party in his youth, before he um, he served in the U.S. Air Force in World War II, and um, became strongly anti-war in the experience of doing that, um, and returned to returned to study as part of the um, the GI Bill, he's just as influenced by old left historians as by new left historians. And actually, um, old Communist Party historians like Philip Foner and Herbert Aptheker, um, the black historian, and multi-talented scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, these are just as bigger influences on Zinn as, as the new left. Um, so as well as this being a book for the 1980s and the culture war, it's also a book that reaches quite far back in Zinn's intellectual development. And I think the final key point, and perhaps the most important when we think about his publisher's decision to publish this book rather than another book by another scholar, um, his publisher was Harper and Rowe. And what they really saw as a marketing opportunity was a book written for young Americans. And again, I think this makes most sense in the, in the post-60s context. It taps into the emergence of youth politics in the 1960s, the, um, the kind of close identification of a, of a post-60s generation. And then an, the idea that, that young people need a new perspective on their national history written from the bottom up skewering those myths of, of America as a great nation, and one written with um, the aftermath of the Vietnam War and Watergate in mind.
0: Last, but by no means least, we move to Gerda Lerner. Um, Lerner's, in some ways, a bit of, bit of a different trajectory than the other historians you write about, so um, comes to history a bit later in life. Uh, she's pretty close to, to being 50 when she graduates from, from Columbia University and then subsequently writes the the text that you focus on do you think that informs her relationship to the academy specifically and then to this notion of popular history or, or history writing more broadly
1: yes i think it does um, you know her, bi- her biography is, is is really interesting i mean one of the, the obvious fundamental difference be- between um lerner and the other four historians i write about is, is her gender uh, but i think there's other things about her biography that set her apart too she's born in austria Um, She migrates from Central Europe, essentially fleeing the Nazis, um, and finds herself um, in the United States um, during World War II. Um, She's involved in the Communist Party. Again, there's a kind of common thread. Not all of the historians I write about were involved in the Communist Party, but most of them were. She's involved very much with women's activism in the party, um, but she also develops links to Hollywood and America's culture industries via her second husband, Carl Lerner. And in the 1950s, she writes a left-wing off-Broadway musical about women's history called *Singing of Women*, which doesn't get much publicity and I think only has a few nights worth of, of run. But the um, but the script for that musical exists in in Gerda Lerner, Lerner's papers, and what it demonstrates, I think, is even before she became a professional historian, when she still thought of herself as a as an activist, as part of what Michael Denning called the, the cultural front, um, she, is, she is thinking about how to popularise history. And that, that informs her decision to go to graduate school to study history much later in life. Like you said, really, she wants to get a PhD in history because she writes, wants to write historical novels and she wants to understand history better. And it's only while she's at graduate school that she begins to realise that becoming a professional historian might be a, really, might be a, a, a good professional goal for her. And what I think um, is, is also important there is the fact that her age and her gravitas um, in the 1960s and 1970s, her, her life experience, make her one of the most visible proponents of women's history in that period. Most of the other important proponents of women's history, your Linda Kerber's, your Alice Kessler-Harris's, etc., are of a younger generation than than Lerner. And, 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 and some of them talk explicitly about the fact that Lerner was a very important Um, avatar for American women's history precisely because she was the the age peer of some of the key key professional historians um, in the United States, rather than being part of a younger generation. So she played a significant role in, in, in shaping the reception of women's history in the 1960s and 1970s because of her because of her age and her specific biography.
0: And one thing you do a really good job of in, in this chapter, which is a theme throughout, but it's perhaps most explicit here, is talking about the relationship between the individual historian and then their, their editor at the press that they're working with. So this figure, Sheldon Mayer, seems to be really important for the development of her of her writing Um, so in in what ways does this relationship give us an insight into this ongoing negotiation between the historian and and between the publisher or between the editor
1: it is an important relationship which is not to downplay learners agency as a as a historian and as an author but is to is to demonstrate the really um, important linkages that all historians who are writing for these types of audiences must and Um, are kind of required to, to, to develop with people working in the publishing industry. So Lerner's relationship with OUP, such as it is, starts in the 1960s when she's finished her PhD It's about the Grimk sisters and and, um, 19th century American history. And she's shopping it around to publishers in the hope that she's going to be able to to have the book published as a monograph. And she really wants to publish with a trade press um, or at least with a big university press. Uh, And she writes, I think, or, or she gets her literary agent to write most of these letters, 24 or 25 letters to a series of New York publishers, ranging from the largest trade houses to some of the to some of the academic houses pitching her book, and they, they all get rejected, essentially. And Sheldon Mayer is one of the people who writes back to um, learners, literary agent, and it says, essentially, OUP, Oxford University Press, is not interested in publishing a book by someone who so forthrightly identifies with the women's movement. Um, this is a book for a different type of press. But then 15 or 20 years later, what's really interesting is that Sheldon Mayer and Oxford University Press actually welcome Gerda Lerner with open arms when she publishes with them the creation of patriarchy in 1986 and the creation of feminist consciousness in in 1993. And there's a whole set of things that have changed, I think, in that intervening period, one of which is that OUP have quite cynically realised that there's considerable amount of um, books to be sold about women's history, uh, and therefore they want to associate themselves with Lerner in a way that they hadn't previously. But also the nature of OUP's publishing model is changing. And I think this is important for Lerner and Mayer too. They are trying to become more identified as a trade press, even though they they have at their heart an, an academic press. And their American office, in responses to changing changes in the global economy, in response to changes in book purchasing habits amongst the American public, are trying to trying to publish more general history. Uh, And therefore, Mayer really um, works very closely um, with Gerda Lerner to develop these two books. And one of the things he really supports her with, and this is where I think his agency is significant, is the peer review process. So Lerner is writing these two books, which go back to ancient Mesopotamia and come right through to the present day. So there's a massive chronological range. And of course, with almost each chapter, she's treading on, on scholars' toes, intervening in their chronological specialties. And the process of peer review is incredibly thorough. Each of these chapters gets sent to different readers. And often those readers are men, and often they respond quite vituperatively to the fact that Lerner is treading on their toes. And one of the things that Mayer is really good at doing is saying to her, don't let these negative peer reviews distract you. We're getting them to try and sharpen the quality of the book, um, but that you shouldn't lose focus on the the singularity of your vision uh, and the way that you are telling the history of patriarchy and the history of um, the emergence of feminist consciousness for a whole range of readers, but in particular feminist readers. Uh, and so Mayer is very influential, I think, in that process. And what what happens then is that, that after these books have been published to great acclaim for Gerda Lerner, she writes him this wonderful letter where she articulates her thanks in really, in, in really endearing terms and makes it clear to him, uh, it all makes it clear to, to, to me, anyway, as a historian reading that letter of his agency in that process. But I think there is there is something quite ironic in that, given that he was one of those editors who rejected her in the 1960s for being too forthrightly connected to the women's movement.
0: Over this period that you're looking at, how do you think the role of the popular historian has changed or, or maybe hasn't changed?
1: In one way, we're seeing this this shift from the idea of the general reader to the idea of the activist reader, and, and as I said at the beginning of the interview, this isn't a hard and fast distinction, but one of the processes that, that my book traces is, is the fact that this idea of activist readers who are specifically interested in reading popular history for a specific set of political reasons, um, this is something that publishers and historians are much more keenly aware of um, when they develop ideas about pop- popular history. Whereas in the beginning of the period in the 1940s and 1950s, this more homogenous idea of there being a singular American general reader embedded in the middle brow, embedded in the liberal consensus, is something that is there. So, so that definitely changes. And that's, um, it's about politics. Uh, it's about the rise of social movements. It's about the changing landscape of American politics on both left and right. Um, but I think it's also about the kind of culture of bookselling and the culture of, of the marketing of books. Uh, there's a recognition that specific... Um, markets can be tapped into that books can be books can be marketed um, and publicized to women readers or specifically to regional readers and it 's really interesting, for example, Daniel Borston, the later volumes in his trilogy are marketed in those ways. He has stories in the second of his three volumes about the emergence of beef farming in Texas, uh, and his publisher Random House, then does a whole marketing campaign. Uh, in Texas, but he also has some bits in in his third book about women's history, and uh, Random House do a whole bunch of marketing to women's readers on, on that basis, so that sense of a kind of segmented market uh, is, is really important in both political and, and in publishing terms. But I think if we, if we think largely about how the role of the popular historian has changed, I think there are also continuities too. And one of the things I do in the conclusion of the book is, is talk about two contemporary popular historians who I think exemplify the continued dynamic and back and forth between the idea of the general reader and the idea of the um, activist reader. And those two historians are um, Jill Lepore, um, the Harvard historian um, who wrote uh, her national history, These Truths, um, in 2018. And just across the other side of the Charles River, the Boston University historian Ibram Kendi, who wrote his popular national history stamped from the beginning uh, a couple of years before Lapore in 2016. And I think in all the publicity that Lapore has done for her book, she has talked in terms that are strikingly reminiscent of the way that Boston um, and Hofstadter and their publishers talked about general readers, trying to pitch a single national history that will unite Americans around it. Now, she has clear political goals in that, and she identifies her book as being a kind of concrete intervention in um, American uh, liberal conversations. Uh, but she's also keenly, keenly um, aware of literary style, and I think a lot of that's rooted in the fact that a lot of that book was 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 written as articles for the New Yorker magazine before it became a single book. So Lepore represents the continued... And visibility of that idea of, of historians writing for general readers. Whereas Kendi, I think, demonstrates uh, the idea very concretely of historians writing for activist readers. His book, Stamped from the Beginning, as a, a conscious intervention in anti-racist politics. And he talks in the introduction about the fact that it cannot be a book for all Americans, because some Americans, those Americans who have no interest in anti-racism and are perhaps consciously invested in racism, have no interest in reading a book by him as a historian and have no interest in engaging with um, the history that he's writing from a set of anti-racist principles. Uh, And so he says, I am writing for for a group of people, a multi-racial group who are interested in learning about United States history set against the backdrop of trying to develop an anti-racist present and future. Both of these books cause controversy in the public sphere. Both of them sell a lot of copies. There are many other examples of popular national histories that have been written by American historians in the last decade or so. But these two, I think, demonstrate not just the changes that have taken place, but also the continuities.
0: Just to finish off, it's always nice for listeners to get a sense of what might be next. Um, So I don't know if you have ideas about potentially what your next big project is that you might want to share a little bit of, of what that might be.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I do. I I think uh, there's a there's a part of me that has been at least um, in a small way inspired by some of these historians that I've that I've written about. And and while I hope this book I've written and published with the University of Chicago Press has the possibility to sell to sell a decent number of copies um, and maybe to some readers who are who are. situated outside of the academy. It's nonetheless an academic monograph and and, 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 and I'm realistic about that but one of the things that I'd like to do is is learn the lessons and write a a more popular um, history, not a national history of the United States but think about what is the type of history that I and other readers would, would really like to read, especially readers interested in some of the questions I have also been interested in during this book and others which is about the politics of the 1960s um, the emergence of, uh, in particular, the anti-Vietnam War movement and um, the role of intellectuals in that movement and the way that intellectuals have shaped their opposition to the emergence of the national security state. And so what I'm currently thinking about doing is a group biography of, um, of four key American anti-war intellectuals, um, one of whom is, is, is a central character in the book that we've just been discussing, Howard Zinn. But the other three are not. Um, and they are um, uh, Noam Chomsky. Uh, the linguist and, 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 and radical public intellectual, Daniel Ellsberg, um, the defence analyst turned whistleblower and um, you know famously associated with the Pentagon Papers. Uh, and finally, less well-known, but I think really, really important in the story I want to tell, the uh, historian um, and, and, and anti-war public intellectual Marilyn B. Young. All four of these people, along with several other key activists in the anti-war movement, um, got together in, in, in 1971 um, to be involved in the May Day protests in Washington, D.C. And there's a wonderful photograph of them all sitting in, in Lafayette Square um, just before those protests took place. And one of the things that I want to do with my with my new book, assuming I can find all the archival material that I want, is to tell the story of how they got to that protest and then how their influence was cast afterwards. But as a conscious group, as a group of friends, as a group of people who had a shared intellectual project, because I think group biography as a a genre is a, is a really useful way of pulling in a whole variety of readers for things that might traditionally be classified as intellectual history or the history of the left. Hopefully that's the next project. But like I say, I'm very much at the beginning of it. So it's going to take a, it's going to take a few years before there's, there's, there's anything there.
0: Oh, that sounds really fascinating. And I'm sure listeners will follow the development up with, with interest. Thanks, Nick, for, for taking the time. It's been really great to talk to you today. Thank you so
1: much, James. It's been a pleasure talking to you about my book.